0: Welcome to Flourishing in Medicine, From Surviving to Thriving. I'm your host, Dr. Mick Krasner, and this podcast is brought to you by MPRO, a medical professional liability insurance carrier headquartered in New York State who's deeply committed to supporting physicians' well-being. Their extensive peer support offerings include this podcast. Today, I'm happy to share with you my conversation with Dr. Aviad, who goes by Adi Haramati, Adi is a professor of integrated physiology and co-director of the graduate program in integrative medicine and health sciences at Georgetown University Medical Center. Coming to Georgetown 38 years ago after five years at the Mayo Clinic. In 2013, he was named a founding director of the Center for Innovation and Leadership in Education, (CENTILE) at Georgetown University. His research interests over the past 25 years have addressed renal and electrolyte homeostasis, but in the past two decades, he's focused much of his efforts on medical education and rethinking how professionals are trained. His teaching acumen and his recognition of that teaching has included 11 Golden Apple Awards from medical and graduate students at Georgetown. In addition, he was awarded the Arthur C. Guyton Teacher of the Year Award by the American Physiological Society, the Alpha Omega Alpha Robert J. Glazer Distinguished Teaching Award from the Association of American Medical Colleges, the Master Scholar Award from the International Association of Medical Science Educators, and he's been named a Distinguished Educator by the Georgetown University Medical Center Teaching Academy for Health Sciences. Dr. Haramadi has advocated that mindful practices together with small group learning be integrated into the training of health professionals to foster resilience and improve well-being in the learning and work environments at academic medical centers. His educational activities have included visiting professorships at over 100 medical schools worldwide. And in this podcast, he shares his unique journey from studying physiology to becoming a leader in mind-body medicine education. A pivotal moment occurred during a meeting at Harvard Medical School where he realized the importance of medical education professional training leading him to integrate mind-body medicine into the Georgetown curriculum. He further discusses the transformation of medical education and the evolving understanding of the importance of self-care for medical professionals. Recently, he has introduced a new course called The Course on Human Flourishing, which aims to provide strategies for thriving in medical school and in life. Sharing personal experiences as an educator, Dr. Haramati highlights the joy he derives from helping students discover their potential and the satisfaction of making a positive impact on medical education. And now, our conversation with Dr. Adi Haramati. The first thing I'd like to hear about is why the health profession is so You know, in my work with students, other colleagues, clinicians, teachers, academics, I've been really impressed by their unique uh, origin story, we can call it, kind of what brought them into the health professions. A lot of times these are early formative experiences. Uh, Sometimes they're experiences they have along their educational pathway continuum. And for some of them, there was no plan, but the path just unfolded for them in that way. So I'd just like to hear a little bit about your own story. How you got here in as a health professional educator?
1: Thanks for the question. It's always interesting. We talk about our work, but uh, rarely do we get a chance to talk about how we got to our work. So let me preface by saying that I'm not a physician. I took a scientific route to what I'm doing today, and pursued a PhD in physiology. And what motivated me to study physiology as opposed to studying medicine? uh, uh, Really, two things. One is. I actually don't like hospitals very much and found that just walking into a hospital did not create a good feeling in me. For some people, that's a draw. This is where they need to be, Um, not for me. But I was always intrigued by the science that underpins medicine, which is why, how do the body functions and why things go wrong? And so physiology to me was the study of medicine. And so in a strange way, I pursued a field that I actually didn't want to deal on the care side, but more on the science and the research side. And throughout my life, I really looked for mentors. I pursued my PhD. I, well, First of all, I went to the University of Cincinnati from New York City because I was looking to leave the noise of New York and see if I could settle into a place smaller and would give me the opportunity to grow within that more finite context. So I went to a department that was fairly young in terms of um, age. I think most of the folks were in their late 30s and early 40s, except for the department chair. And then I selected a mentor based on who I thought I would learn the most from. And that actually carried me to my postdoc, where, again, I selected a mentor. And to my first faculty position, which was here at Georgetown, again, looking for a department chair that I felt I could learn from, not just who was going to give me the best package. So you could say that this was an early connection with science, but also with relationships with people.
0: And maybe it can help me, you know, you've done a lot of work in mind, body, medicine, education, help us the listeners and myself connect the dots between renal physiology and what's called mind body medicine from your perspective and how that unfolded in your experience
1: Uh, so i also really appreciate this question because the term urine and the term mindfulness are rarely in the same sentence so yeah this is part of my trajectory so i do have to fill in some gaps I came to Georgetown in 1985, that was 38 years ago from today, and I came really focused on building a research lab, generating data, doing science, training graduate students. Uh, That was my focus, and for seven years, that's what I did. Now, when I got there, I was asked, could I teach the renal section of the physiology course? Sure, no problem. The next year, you did such a good job on the renal lectures. How would you like to run the whole physiology course? Well, that was a little more, a co- bigger commitment, but I agreed to do that. And for me, the price to do research was I did some teaching. It turned out to be about half a year's worth of teaching, but it's not every day. It's not, I mean, it's not every hour. It was every day for a few hours between January and May. And then along the way, I, I guess I was effective or the students uh, responded well to what I was presenting. I did win a few teaching awards, but for me, During that first seven years, teaching was the price I paid to do research. And then in 1992, so seven years later, by then I had been promoted. I had established myself here at the school. I get a call from the Dean one day, which was an unusual thing. It didn't happen every day, but the Dean called me and said that they're sending me to Boston for a week. And I go, why? And they said, well, Harvard University School of Medicine has now been four years into their new curriculum. This was 1992. Their curriculum started in 88, their new pathway. And they're inviting every school to send one person to learn about what they've done and to gain some insights, not to necessarily replicate it, but really to participate in some discussions about their curriculum. And I begged him not to send me because I had no interest to go to this meeting. And he would hear nothing of it and basically said, you're going and then you'll come back, tell us what you learned. So I flew up to Boston very annoyed that I was going to spend a week listening to how wonderful Harvard was and uh, really engaging in something that I had no interest in. Well, in the first, uh, we walk into this auditorium in building uh, E at the time on the quadrangle of the Harvard Medical School. And two individuals came on the stage. One was Daniel Tosteson, the dean of the school, and the other was Dan Fetterman, the dean of medical education. And as they began to introduce what they were doing and why they felt compelled to host this meeting, I felt my entire view of my job completely change. And I was mesmerized. And uh, the basic message that Tostason provided, who was a physiologist by training, was this. You are working in a medical school and your primary job is to train a health professional, yes, we are hired to do research. Yes, we're hired to see patients, but the reality is you're training a professional, and yet we don't take our education as seriously as we take our other endeavors, and that is wrong. We wouldn't think of walking into the operating room without a carefully delineated protocol. We wouldn't think of walking into the research lab without a carefully delineated protocol. How is it that we could walk into lecture hall and not really have a good sense of what we're doing. And frankly, teaching at that time was coming into a room, telling people what you know, exchanging content or transmitting content, and then a few weeks later finding out what the students remembered from what you delivered. That's not education. But I was hooked. And then another serendipitous um, event at that particular meeting was that we were assigned to groups to learn about problem based learning, which is a teaching pedagogy. It's a methodology in which cases are presented and students learn to work through cases. And I was assigned to a group that was led by what? A nephrologist, who I happen to know by reputation, but never met. And the case was a case of a child in Africa with um, a refugee child with Kwashiorkor. That was a fluids case. I was mesmerized. And I spent a week in the library researching the case and then deciding or planning how we were gonna change the curriculum so that I could actually implement some of this. And I came back to Georgetown after we completely energized by the fact that I am now going to spend 50% of my time on education. So that was the first phase. And that went from 92 to 97, where my focus was, how do I use science to train a professional? How do we use science, for example, to shape attitudes? And uh, you know, we have a tendency in the sciences to read through a case and immediately go to the data, the numbers, what are the lab values? What Let's make a diagnosis and a treatment plan. And I didn't do that. I actually spent time on the psychosocial descriptions that most scientists skip over because they're not important. But actually for me, that was the whole point of the case is that the, the context matters. The social situation matters. And so as I began to think more and more about attitudinal shifts in students and how we could use science for that, the logical question came, how do we train students to meet the needs of the public? And when it came to complementary approaches to care, particularly with chronic illnesses like cancer and arthritis and heart disease, Western medicine is excellent at acute interventions, but is lacking. In dealing with quality of life issues. And so things like mind body medicine to manage stress rather than taking antipsychotics or antidepressants that have variable efficacy, or using manipulation instead of surgery, or using massage, or using acupuncture for pain instead of opiates. And so the idea was well, how are we going to teach students about these aspects? And so I had an opportunity to write a grant to NIH to create a curriculum in our medical school. And I latched onto it because I thought this is actually a way to teach attitudes and to really prepare students to meet the needs of the public. And so we wrote a grant to NIH to create an integrated medicine curriculum that was not a $50,000 grant. It was $1.6 million over five years. Yes, Exactly. This is significant dollars for a curriculum grant. And what do we do with the money? What we did is we bought people's time to actually invest in making something that would be long lasting. Part of this was to decide what students should know. And then the other component was what experiential elements could actually be used for the betterment of the student life. And that is how I brought Mind Body Medicine. I went to get trained myself with other clinicians even though i'm not a clinician they were looking how do we use my body in our practice for patients with chronic pain with cancer with heart disease as support groups as tools for self-care and my approach was how do i create an educational intervention that will immediately impact on our students because it will give them tools to help themselves as a start and when they learn to help themselves then they can learn to help others so that was a long-winded answer how I went from renal physiology to mind-body medicine. Now, I still, to this day, direct the renal module, but I also, to this day, co-lead the mind-body medicine program. You know, it's it's so
0: fascinating, this story of first somewhat being infected, you could say, by the bug of medical education, this threshold moment at Harvard Medical School, but not really knowing, because you knew science, not really knowing how it would lead to shifts the next you described is this contextualization in humanism. and then the final shift, or the most more recent shift is, than self-care well-being what does that have to do with professional education so i knew i was really interested in interviewing you because of your interest and commitment to medical education could you maybe share any more observations about that aspect bringing that self-care or that well-being aspect that has been part of you we could say your raison d'etre your reason for being in the game of medical education you're a great storyteller so i love to hear how you share that narrative with us
1: So I have more to say about the transition points between self-care and science and the training of a professional. Part of it has to do also with a realization that sometimes you're sitting in a position that's a pivotal one and you have a a choice point to make. You either step into a role that might make you uncomfortable or you could take the safe road and say, let's leave it to someone else. So when I first was thinking about how mind-body medicine might come to our school, what I was thinking is, let me see what this is, and then let me find the right people that can do that. And I brought a colleague who is a clinical social worker that happened to work with James Gordon to create the training program for the clinicians. And so she's an expert in really developing a faculty development program in mind-body. And I created a pilot in which we would pilot this with our students to see, first of all, how is it accepted and how would we deliver it, and and just go through the, you know, at least a an experimental phase of how this might work. But I made sure to partner with her because I wanted to see her in action. And what impressed me was the way the students responded to these experiential sessions that we had, because for the students, what this meant was I've spent six months in medical school learning an awful lot about science and biochemistry and the DNA. But where's the patient's part? And then when we started talking about things that affect our lives and tools that could help us, that they reacted to. And they also reacted to the fact that they could hear from each other. And so I began to get fascinated with how the students reacted to it, how my colleague was leading these groups that we were co-facilitating, but she was doing more of the facilitating. I was doing more of the observing. and then it came to the point where now I think we need to roll this out. And so the first question I got from folks is why are you involved in this? You're not a mental health professional. You're not a psychologist. And I said, exactly. But what we need is we need people that the students see in leadership roles, course directors, clerkship directors, our associate deans. Those are the individuals that need to walk the walk. And what that means is did I ever think that I would lead a meditation group and ring a set of tincture bells and bring everyone to, you know, an intentional moment and then lead a script that John Kabat-Zinn developed uh, for a mindfulness meditation? No, I never thought I would do that. I thought it would be very uncomfortable. In fact, the first time that I did that, I thought I was going to lose my mind because what am I doing? I'm not. This is not my field. My discomfort was not observed by the students. The students saw, wait a minute, our physiology course director is meeting with us at 6.30 at night to lead a meditation? What is that? And then you realize that if you're going to make change, you have to get out of your comfort zone and you have to lead and step into the role that you have. And so the reality is, as you probably know, that there aren't many basic scientists that were involved in this movement. Uh, Yes, there were neuroscientists that were doing the science, but the actual delivery of these practices was not. And I thought, this is how we turn the wagon. This is how we change the perception. And so I lead with physiology. Uh, When I first give a talk on mind-body, I will discuss the, the brain. I will discuss the cardiovascular system. I will discuss the endocrine system. I'll discuss all the systems that actually can be controlled by our thoughts in ways that we never appreciated years ago. And that once you understand the physiology, if you understand the physiology of stress, you will understand the physiology of de-stress. And so it turned out that this was exactly the role that I needed to play. And I was not afraid to face critics because when they were when I was challenged, uh, the mind-body component was easy. It's when they challenged me on herbs that I'd say, you know, you're right. I I'm cautious about what I put in my mouth. But if you're worrying about meditation, let me explain to you why physiologically, this is actually the best way that we can begin to deal with things. So it it was a natural progression. But we also approached this strategically. This is another thing to think about, which is we didn't just take the folks that were dying to do this. In other words, the choir. But rather, I was looking for people that were very prominent at our school, but were open-minded. And I wanted the reaction to be, what? You're involved in the mind-body group because that begins to change culture. And so that's how we went about it. It's now our 22nd year that we're running these courses. We're expanding them uh, into various sorts, but the impact it's had on our culture at the medical school uh, can't be underestimated. It's it's something the school is extremely proud of.
0: What I really uh, enjoy about hearing this story is that you're describing in a certain way how you're creating a situation in which the hidden curriculum and the informal curriculum comports with the actual formal curriculum, the vision and mission of medical education, and that's really hard to do. I'm interested, were you surprised by some of the folks who actually came on board as you began to try to recruit uh, those who were not necessarily part of the choir, as you described?
1: Well, I think you know me. You know that "no" is not one of the words in my vocabulary, so I, I don't, I don't let go easy. But for many, you know, it, it all depends on the approach. Uh, I think that I, I personally was shocked at my own um, evolution because I was, you know, if you if you say to me, "Look, you know, I was born in Israel, I grew up in New York City," I like to say we do judgment for breakfast, and when you think about that. The whole essence of many of these practices is approaching things complete non-judgmentally. Set that aside. And I tell people, for me to become non-judgmental required almost a DNA recalculation. And yet you can learn to do that. You can learn to listen to the end and not try to finish people's sentences because you're so sure you know what they're going to say. You might be surprised. And so I think my own transition here was, was... perhaps a catalyst for other folks to put their toes in and say, "Well, wait a minute, you know, he's still teaching renal and he's doing this. What, what's that about? The other thing I will tell you is that data data carries the day. And so we started collecting data very quickly from the first group that we did on a variety of parameters, not just quantitative measures of stress and and, and a number of other things, but empathy, for example, but but open-ended questions, like, Why, what did this course mean to you? And when students write, Things like, you know, listening to other students talk about the challenges they face made me realize I'm not alone. Or the lessons that, you know, I struggle with trying to balance how much time to study and how much time for myself and I feel guilty when I go take a 30-minute run. And so now I realize that's actually better for me to do. You know, we need to give our students and our and our colleagues who are actually even worse shape permission to take care of themselves. I mean, your own studies at Rochester have shown that we're our worst enemies, that we know what we need to do for ourselves. And yet, you know, we have a barrier because of the way we're composed and our dedication to others. But that doesn't help people. And that came out in the COVID pandemic. All of a sudden, the the school's leadership is asking me to lead a meditation for 500 people on a Zoom call. Now, first of all, 500 people coming to a faculty meeting is unheard of because usually 20 show up. But all of a sudden during the pandemic, as everybody's worried about what, you know, what are we doing? What are we dealing with? How are we going to teach? How are we going to research? How do we treat patients? And then I'm asked to talk about the importance of self-care and why self-care is not narcissism, but actually vital to make you present and available to your family and to your patients and to your colleagues. This was a validation of everything that we were doing. Uh, and so uh, it's it takes courage. This is my bottom line. I say that to everybody. Uh, I say that to every dean I meet. You want to change the culture in your school? It starts with courage of you stepping into the room.
0: And courage is, you know, in some ways being open-hearted in a certain way in a... Uh vulnerable way i guess we could say um i I just want to step back you you talked about this uh colleague this woman who had developed some skills teaching and what was it about her skills and what you saw that you could see in yourself not only seeing yourself as cultivating as a teacher but also that you could see in other folks uh, other of your others of your colleagues cultivating similar skills that they could do this in their own way with their own signature with their own personality of course
1: so at the risk of embarrassing my colleague her name is nancy harris duck and uh, she's a woman of extraordinary talent that can bring together a group in a session and she exudes pure love this is the way she's composed everything about her is authentic and when she leads a group you're just drawn in And so what I was watching very carefully is how does she do that? What are the words that she say? I'm not Nancy Harrison, but I learned a lot from how she presents um, what she's trying to evoke. And then I kind of do it a little bit differently. This is why we were a very good partnership because she came with a pure sense of all I wanna do is teach this to as many people as I can. And I said to her, we can't get anywhere without data. We're going to have to get data because we're going to need to convince the powers that be and other medical schools and uh, the licensing boards that uh, what we're doing is not just feel good and effective, but it's important, it has an impact and um, is a way that we need to go. So it was was a good combination, but I I learned a lot from, for example, how she phrased uh, words, how she introduced meditation. I can be very technical. She had a much more circumspect view of things. So, you know, I encourage folks to surround yourself. You hear this a lot. Surround yourself with people that are different from you, because together you'll find a path that neither one of you could have done by yourself.
0: I think that's right. So, uh, you know, from the medical school classroom to the culture of medicine on the wards, to the rarefied environment of organized medicine, organized medical education that you've been involved with for example the WAMC, the american association of medical colleges i'd just like to hear from you i'm always curious myself as how to what do these all have in common can you share about the commonalities of all these levels of what we could call the culture of medicine how's it been in the past what it was like how's it how is it now and and how do you see it evolving uh with some of our understandings and our especially our understanding that well-being of the health professional is actually a quality metric. It's a metric that reflects our mission in medicine and what we're here to do.
1: You ask an important question, which is uh, medicine is hierarchical. I would say that if we go back 20, 30, 40 years, the notion of what it meant to be a physician and the degree of service to others was paramount. And as the data began to emerge in the last 20 years on burnout, on stress, on the impact on caregivers, it became clear to uh, the overriding bodies. The AMC, for example, the Association of American Medical Colleges oversees all our medical schools, 157 in the United States, 17 in Canada, 400 teaching hospitals, a whole number of health systems. Looking at the workforce and looking at the impact on learners and our faculty prompted the AMC to begin to start taking stress and burnout very seriously. Part of it has to do with the way the system operates in its academic pursuits, the delivery of care, the pressures on research, the challenges in teaching as teaching has evolved. And we're moving away from the lecture hall and more into simulation labs and into small group activities. And even teaching on the wards has changed. There was a realization, a very important one, that that we're human, that we have frailties, that we have limits. And that perhaps holding off on self-care was really not the way to go. And we needed to do something different. There were also individuals that stepped up to tell about their own stories, including Daryl Courage, who was the president of the AMC, and talked about his own mental health challenges, which was very profound. Uh, At a large national meeting of 5,000 people in attendance, that begins to get attention. Our youth are coming to medical school now with I think more mental health issues than ever before, or at least we're they're, they're, they're aware of it more than we've had before. And frankly, uh, to be a human being in the 21st century with all the continual stimulation, we're in a heightened state of alertness and almost uh, in a stress state continually. Now we have to go out of our way to find those times to create the pauses and the grounding. So it's very different than it was. Uh, we can do a lot more things at the same time and more efficiently. But it doesn't mean that our challenges are less. They're actually greater. And, uh, and our, the pressures on our time are greater. And two worker households are the, are the, are the norm now. And so, you, you know, I can go on, but you get the idea that it's challenging. And so um, I think that there is an awareness that we have to deal with this. If you ask any health executive, top three issues that you're dealing with, workforce well-being is going to be among those top three. That's on everybody's radar now. And a lot of it has to do with the work of Colin West, who you've had on this program, and Tate Chanefelt, the team at Mayo, but many others as well that have addressed that. What the Mayo group did that was extraordinary is really come up with data, with numbers. We needed to really understand this, not just descriptive, but really get a sense of what does it actually look like when you when you look at the numbers across the nation. So in a way, I've been more optimistic about the future of medicine now than I have was 20 years ago. I think this realization, the move, for example, to bring humanities into the curriculum. uh, You wonder, is there room for that? Yes, there is room and it's essential. The need for self-reflection, and not just through mind-body experiences, but also through narratives, through discussions, creating communities. You know, as we move more remotely, and as we're using simulations, and as we're uh, look at e-visits, telehealth, right, as in a in-person relationship as we were in the past, which has advantages, particularly for rural medicine. But yet, what you see is uh, our students thrive connection. We need this kind of social gathering, and frankly, it's what led me to think about mind-body too if you will, thinking about a different kind of curriculum, not to take mind-body away, but about a third of our class will take the mind-body course. But that means that two thirds don't, either because of time pressures or because, you know, just the idea of meditation doesn't really resonate. And so I've been looking for a number of years for material to develop a different kind of course that would perhaps broaden the appeal And allow for self-awareness and self-reflection to emerge, but through a different context. And I landed on something which I'm happy to tell you about. If something you want to hear,
0: I do. This is a perfect segue. I'd love to hear about this uh, course. Please share the title again and read the title to us because it's I think fits in so well with this interview.
1: So when you first invited me to come on your uh, on on this podcast, and you told me it's about flourishing, I chuckled because over this past summer. The course that I developed is called The Course on Human Flourishing. The tagline is strategies for thriving in medical school and in life. And so just to briefly describe what this is, first of all, the, the context for this course is that physical and mental health are critical. There's no question, but it's not sufficient. It's not sufficient to thrive. In other words, you need mental and physical health. And mind-body can help us get there. It's a way to which we can care for ourselves, understand ourselves better, be more present, which we know improves well-being. But if you think about your job and your life, well, how do you thrive in that? And for that, you turn to the positive psychologist, turn to the social scientists, and you discover that there's quite a literature on human flourishing. And I'm particularly citing work from Tyler Vanderweel, who's a social scientist at the Harvard School of Public Health, And in 2017, wrote an article in PNAS, The Proceedings of the National Academy of Science, the title of which was On the Promotion of Human Flourishing. And the thesis of his article was that there are several domains that contribute to an individual or a population's flourishing, thriving. And that involves things, first of all, some key domains, family, work, education, and community could be a religious community could be just a communal gathering and that there are several factors that intersect with that happiness life satisfaction meaning purpose uh, things like character and virtue social relationships and the interaction the family relationships and then a big one spirituality or the transcendence thinking about things bigger than us if you will in the world that we live in the universe that we're in some of these are very lofty uh, ideals, and some of these are fairly concrete. But when you think about these domains, these are elements that actually impact on how one does in their work. Is there meaning? Is there a purpose? Am I happy with what I'm doing? Am I getting satisfaction from what I'm doing? What drives that satisfaction? What determines what if I'm happy or not? And so with these dimensions, I decided to put together a course. And with support from the Kern National Network, which is part of the Kern Foundation at uh, the Medical College of Wisconsin, uh, we received a, a nice plan to develop this course. Uh, this is part of their framework. Their goal is to foster flourishing and character and care in medicine in general. And, you know, I'm an educator, I'm an implementer. And so my goal was to create a course that would build on that and actually deliver the opportunities for students to experience Aspects of each of the domains that I mentioned in a way that would concretize that in their minds and begin to get them to think about it. And so that's what we're piloting now. We're piloting this course. It has eight sessions, they're two hours each. We started with self awareness and self compassion because we're so hard on ourselves, and our medical students are even harder on themselves. So they need to learn that aspect of self compassion. And then we move to happiness, life satisfaction, and gratitude. And uh, this past week, we dealt with meaning and purpose. And next week, we're going to deal with character and virtue. And you say, what do we do? Are these just broad discussions? No, there are some very specific questions that I invite the group. And we only we have these in groups of 10, groups of students to uh, reflect on. And then we actually do an activity that fosters that. So, for example, on meaning and purpose, um, have a conversation and our two facilitators also participate. So for our students, I say, why didn't you choose medicine? Why are you in medical school? What do you hope to achieve? What is the best part of yourself that you could see manifest in the career that you aspire to do? What is it that you wish for? What is it that you need? And then to our faculty, why did you choose what you're doing? If you're teaching or if you're doing research or if you're uh, delivering care, what is that that gives you meaning? And then what we do is we have them write their own Hippocratic Oath. This is something that I borrowed from uh, Rachel Naomi Remen uh, in her Healers Art course, but we've kind of retrofitted it to this. Um, and that have students think about not reciting a Hippocratic Oath of somebody else's words, but rather their own oath of what is it that they hope to aspire and hope to receive in terms of skills and courage and, um, and fortitude to really be successful in life and to make an impact and to make a difference. Our session last night was about this. The students left their days. They were. They said this, is, this was an amazing session that validated why I'm in a medical school. So I'm very excited by this. I can't wait to do next week. And uh, as we unfold this, I'm gonna do a training to bring 10 people to a training for three days immersive training so that they will kind of live the course that they're then going to deliver uh, i see this as really expanding the offering mind body is certainly valuable has its role i hope to capture another segment of the class with this offering on human flourishing
0: it sounds fantastic and i think I think your faculty development process sounds like a wonderful way of really having people live it who are teaching it. I'm also thinking about that exercise with the Hippocratic Oath. You know, that is probably the first actual statement of professionalism that has been made. So a lot of this is uh, tied into professional identity formation, which actually, in my mind, Adi, is not something that you do once early on in your education, then it stays with you. It's a constant uh, remaking, revisiting, reflection process, an iterative process throughout our career. I did want to, when you're talking about meaning and purpose uh, as one of those center points of this course, or one of the uh, sections of this course, maybe you can talk about why is it important that we have a sense as health professionals of joy, we could say eudaimonic joy and meaning and purpose in our work? What, what is the importance for that for us? It may be a rhetorical question, but I think it's worth all of us reflecting on that because I think it is something that sustains us and actually feeds us and that also actually allows us to serve our patients as well.
1: Well, uh, for medicine in particular, there are a lot of sacrifices. Sacrifices in going through the training. There are sacrifices in your time as you care for others. There are emotional tolls. For people in the trenches, the nurses particularly, I'm thinking about uh, the residents. uh, Many are dealing with life and death situations on a regular basis. That takes a huge emotional toll. Our societies couldn't exist without people being engaged in that activity. And helping others, but we can't lose sight of the burden that it is. And so, when you look at the plus side, why would I want to do this? There needs to be a sense of gratification that manifests as joy. It's not just I did a good thing, but I'm actually happy about it. And so, when we ask students like, "What what makes you happy? You know, is it getting a good grade on a test? Is it?" opening the door for someone who is was struggling because they're on crutches uh which one of those actually gives you more joy we know from the data in the literature that when you perform an act of kindness to someone else you help them but you also help yourself and it's a toss-up which one is actually more beneficial so uh you know at the end of the day if we want society to achieve a higher manifestation than simple self-aggrandizement or self-gratification we have to help others and Benefit the joy from that act, and so I like the fact that we talk about restoring the joy in medicine because there's so many things that beat us down. You know, let me let me take the position now, of, of a health executive. You know, many of us look at the health executive. All oh, those guys get paid a lot of money, and uh, you know, what are they actually doing? But the truth is, it's a very difficult job, to manage the risk, to try and balance. How are you going to run a very complicated enterprise? with so many variables there has to be more in it than monetary remuneration that's not the driver and you know dan goldman wrote about this uh, almost 25 years ago in a harvard business review on what makes a leader he he interviewed 200 ceos of companies what makes a leader and yes they're all smart they're all um, well compensated they're all highly motivated but you know what the distinguishing factor was between those that were successful, uh, that had successful companies that didn't, was the degree to which they could empathize, empathize with their workers, the degree of empathy. And that's when he developed this whole emotional intelligence framework, which is the empathic leader, not the one that falls apart necessarily when things are bad. But someone that can put themselves in the shoes of the other, understand the other point of view, and then make decisions that take things into account. Yes, as a leader, you'll make tough decisions. Not everyone's going to be happy all the time, but it depends on how you approach that. And so the same thing in medicine, as you're thinking about delivering bad news. I hate that part of the job, right? Giving bad news. But then if you do that in an empathic way, in a way that the patient is grateful, thank you for sharing and the manner in which you did The reality is the reality, but but everything else that surrounds that can make the entire uh, relationship a much better one. That's why we do what we do. And the sooner we can transmit that to our students and have them think about it in their own, with their own lenses, about their own experience and what kind of practitioner they want to be. We're doing them a favor. And so, you know, it comes back to your first question to me, you know, how'd you go from science to education? And and the bottom line is our students don't just become compassionate caregivers because they came to medical school with very high GPAs and they know how to memorize. That's not what does it. And unless we create opportunities in our curriculum to specifically develop that aspect of their personality and we model it and we work on it and we have them work on it and they do it in groups and learn from each other, that's when they'll become compassionate and caring practitioners. It won't happen by happenstance. It has to be really carefully thought out. So I I think we're making progress in ways that we, we didn't years ago.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's very possible to do this, to get there, Partly because as social beings, as a social species, actually evolution has designed us in such a way that compassion is important. It's actually a survival. Sympathy is important. Survival empathy is, those are all important characteristics that have improved the survivability of our species. And so we're tapping into something that is very real, very biologic in a certain sense through one lens. And so it's there. It can be suppressed or trained out of us or our society and culture can uh, push it aside for other things. But I think it's great that uh, you're in a position in medical education that is sort of bringing this back online, so to speak. I want you to do a little thought experiment uh, and then describe as best you can what it would be like to be a student in an encounter with an educator, a health professional educator, And that educator is flourishing energetic committed compassionate attentive robust imagine what that experience would be like if if you're the student from that end of that relationship and then the the flip side would be as a health professional educator working with a student what is that experience like for you when you are flourishing when you are committed compassionate attentive robust all those other adjectives that i use so What's it like to be on the, we could say, receiving end of that bi-directional student educator relationship? And then what's it like on the other side being the educator and you're feeling good and
1: flourishing? Great question. So let me start with the learner side, which is, what do we know about learners encountering enthusiastic teachers that love what they do? Think about the teachers that inspired you more often than not, there were people that really... We're enthusiastic. If you look, for example, what's the number one criterion for how students positively rate a teacher? Enthusiasm is number one. That actually is actually more important than content, delivery, and so on. So enthusiasm, we know, is contagious, and uh, and positive emotions are contagious. And so that certainly helps. And as opposed to someone that comes in and goes, you know, I really don't want to be here, and uh, kind of is, is a turnoff. You know, where the stern uh, educators are is a little bit in between. I think over time you learn to respect the people that that were stern and very deliberate and smile a lot. But that's not the same as the folks that are engaging and charismatic and also taught you well. Those are the ones you remember and those are the ones that you want to emulate. So, you know, we learn a lot from our teachers, both what to do and what not to do. As an educator, I will tell you, I was the beneficiary of two educators. Both my parents were teachers, and they were extraordinary teachers. They were legends in the school that they taught. They were different, but they were uh, extraordinarily enthusiastic and, and knew what they were doing and knew that every student actually, you had to reach a, every student differently because not everybody learns the same way. And so I, I, I never thought I would be a teacher. Uh, You know how that is. You don't do what your parents do until you do. And so for me, I derive the greatest pleasure when I have a group of students that are totally with me. And, you know, I'll have students come to my office, knock on the door and sit down and they're in tears and they're going, I just don't understand anything. I don't know even where to begin. And so I say to them, you know, before we do that, just tell me about you a little bit. Tell me, like, you know, how did you get to Georgetown? Where are you from? Tell me about your family. And we'll spend 10 minutes just kind of learning a little bit. And I said, you could ask me anything you want before we start. Uh, and I'll, I'll get to your question. But then after 10 minutes of a connection, and I'll always find something to say, oh, I, I kind of know that place. And then I'll say, well, let's let's see. And I'll invariably, you know, they'll say, I don't understand this. And I say, well, maybe you think you know more than you do. And, you know, maybe you actually do know. And I'll ask them a question that I'm pretty sure they'll be able to answer. And sure enough, they do. And then I go, okay, so we got this part down. In other words, it's about building things up. And as I'm watching this, there's a part of me that is just chomping at the bit because I can't wait for when the session's over and they look at me and they go, wow, that actually really, really helped me. And all I did was just help them identify things that were inside them, but they were just covered over. They were clouded and you bring clarity into that and you bring it into it. And in some cases there are things that need to be explained and great. And so, and someone will say to me, I hear you. I don't get it. And I said, good, let's try it again. And then they'll say, you still don't get it. And I say, we're not leaving here until I've found a way to help you try and do this. And so it's on me now, not on you. It's on me. Cause I'm not explaining this Right. OK, and so that takes some pressure off, but there's nothing that gives me more pleasure than that. I remember walking into a lecture hall with 102 fever pre-COVID, of course, 102 fever, feeling like crap. And 10 minutes into the lecture, I actually don't feel anything anymore because my adrenals kicked in. I'm on a high. It's just it just feeds my soul.
0: Well, I have had that experience of uh, learning from you, so I can attest to that. So finally, I'd like to know, and maybe our listeners would but mostly it's for me, uh, what you like to do when you're not speaking or teaching somewhere on planet Earth. And there's very few places on planet Earth. It seems you haven't been teaching others or innovating and in planning changes in medical education. What, and maybe that's what you like to do most. But uh, what else do you like
1: to do? So so I do have a life outside of my job. It just so happens that I love my job and I think I have the best job in the world because the school is giving me a lot of rope to really maneuver. So what do I like to do? I like to be with my family. We have three grown children. We have five grandchildren and one on the way uh, next month. Everybody lives in Miami. So we're on a monthly trip to Miami. I have contacted all the med schools down there, by the way. I've visited them all because I don't sit on a beach, but um, I like to cook for my wife. But my greatest pleasure is cooking for my kids and my grandkids and watching them eat mindfully because they've learned how to eat mindfully. And so they're told the first bite of anything you eat has to be a mindful bite. You need to savor it. And then you need to open your eyes and tell me what you just tasted. And that is my greatest pleasure on this planet.
0: Well, I would love to be invited to your home someday and uh, and be able to mindfully eat your food. So we'll keep that in mind, Adi. Um, anything else you'd like to share? That we there's a lot of areas we haven't got to, but this has been great. Really appreciate this time with you. Really, especially appreciate the time with you. I always uh, feel enriched by that when I'm around you. So anything else you'd like to comment or reflect upon?
1: Yes, I would, actually. I, I, first of all, want to congratulate you on on leading this series. You have an extraordinary talent. If you, I don't know if you remember when we met, but our viewers or our listeners might be interested to know that uh, the way we met was uh, you published a paper in JAMA in 2009, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. September of 'oh nine, and it was a paper about creating a program to help uh primary care physicians reduce their burnout through a series of interventions that your center is well known for and i read the paper i saw it come out and i emailed you immediately i didn't know you but i found your email and i emailed you and i said congratulations it's amazing that they published the paper because JAMA was not known for these kinds of work but i said this is going to be a landmark study And that became our friendship, because then we met and we did a bunch of conferences together. But I've learned from you a tremendous amount. And I came up to your training that you lead with uh, Ron Epstein. And so I have to say that uh, it's been a delight to get to know you and to learn from you. And thank you for inviting me to join you today. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening today. We will include a summary of today's podcast and links about Dr. Haramadi and other references that he made that were discussed in the show notes. I would like to conclude by sharing another exercise to support your flourishing in medicine. For this one, I'd like you to sit comfortably for the next few minutes and simply follow my suggestions as you explore ways to care best for yourself. Dr. Haramadi talked about this in the podcast, this self-care element, and I thought maybe we should... Just explore this a little bit. So sitting comfortably in a chair. You could stand if you like, wherever you are, just making yourself comfortable. You can close your eyes. You can keep your gaze a little diffusely focused. Or you can look at something. All of that is okay. And I'd just like you to reflect for a moment on what you do to care for yourself. What are the things that you engage in? They may be spending time with friends and family. Maybe getting outside taking a walk, maybe reading, maybe writing, maybe listening to music, maybe simply just relaxing and sitting quietly. If you could bring one of those activities to mind right now, just take a moment to experience what's happening in your body right at this moment as you bring that experience of self-care that you've engaged in to mind. Our minds are real powerful, quite uh, evocative of actually changing our physiology from moment to moment and simply reflecting on an activity in which we are caring for ourselves can be an act of caring for ourselves. So actually one of the activities that you may want to consider doing is simply stopping for a moment during your workday, the end of your workday, in the beginning, whenever you feel Like it's called for, and just reflecting on caring for yourself, on specifically an activity that you engage in that you identify as self care. Simple as that. So, I hope you found this podcast and the simple guided practice useful, and I look forward to having you join us for the next episode of Flourishing in Medicine From Surviving to Thriving. If you would like to learn more about EMPRO, please visit www.myempro.com. And for more information about me and my work, please visit www.McKrasnerMD.com or www.MindfulPracticeInMedicine.com. Until next time.